It's the last Sunday of the year, and we're going to look at the last chapter in the Bible, Revelation chapter 22. If you want to turn there, we'll get there in a minute. But I want to kind of set a scene for this by talking about a very famous American uh, by the name of uh, Douglas MacArthur, General Douglas MacArthur. His uh, biographer, William Manchester, called MacArthur the American Caesar. He's perhaps the greatest military leader in the history of the United States. Really was a, a larger-than-life figure. Even to those who were very close to him, they just were uh, kind of all, almost in awe of him. And when Pearl Harbor was attacked, and we just celebrated an important anniversary on December 7th about Pearl Harbor, uh, MacArthur was the commander-in-chief of all the U.S. forces in the Far East. He was in the Philippines. And so I, I preached this sermon before, and I, I don't know, the, the generation of men who served in, especially in the Pacific Theater, a lot of them really did not like MacArthur. And so mixed reviews on him. In fact, one guy came up to me and said, I, I can't believe you even talked about that guy. Old Dugout Doug, we were there you know, fighting the Japanese, and, and he was safe in a, in a dugout. Well, okay. But um, when Pearl Harbor was attacked, um, he was in the Philippines, in Manila. And in Manila Bay, if you've ever been there, right at the mouth of the bay, there is a, an island fortress, and it's on the um, island called Corregidor. It, so Corregidor is just this little island there in the front of the uh, bay. And this is a really big bay. It's like 60 miles wide. And Corregidor was known as the Rock. Um, within hours of the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, the forces of the Japanese Imperial Army also began an air attack on American forces in the Philippines. We don't remember that part as much. But that was soon followed by the invasion of ground forces. They didn't just attack it by air, they, they sent their armies in and invaded the Philippines. And it was soon, uh, it, was, it was a tough battle. Corregidor was the last bastion of American and Filipino resistance. The government of the Philippines literally moved to this island, to Corregidor. And they were, uh, there's kind of a mountain on Corregidor. I've been there a couple of times. And underneath there's a tunnel, it's called the Malinta Tunnel. It's, it's incredible complex. They actually have, uh, uh, or they had a field hospital in the Malinta Tunnel to service 1,200 people. I mean, it's just gigantic under there. But the Japanese bombed and bombed and bombed it. And on the, uh, up to the north of Corregidor was a peninsula called the Bataan Peninsula, or Bataan Peninsula. And that's where most of the American forces were. They were captured by the Japanese, and there were 70,000 of them, of uh, Americans and Filipino forces together, and they were forced to march around uh, the Manila Bay to a, a, another place called the Bataan Death March, and a lot of them died. I mean, these were horrible, horrible times. Well, Quezon, the, the president of the Philippines, and MacArthur were on Corregidor. After the the death march, Corregidor held out for another four months. And I've talked to people who actually saw this. They said there was not one blade of green grass or tree left on Corregidor. It had been bombed so heavily. But they could not 
penetrate that tunnel, but it was a losing proposition. And so it finally surrendered on May the 6th, so about six months after the uh, bombing of Pearl Harbor. But MacArthur was not there. He had been ordered, a secret message by President Roosevelt, to escape in order to organize a larger campaign against the Japanese forces. Uh, Roosevelt knew that MacArthur was a great military leader. He didn't want him to be captured by the Japanese. And so he spurned the offer of leaving in a submarine. They said they had a submarine that was going to come to Corregidor and, and take him off at night. And he said, no, that's too cowardly. So he went literally in a PT boat, which is an open boat, all the way to Australia. This was a long ways to Darwin, Australia. He leaves from the Lorcha Dock, which is now in, in disrepair, but this is where he left from. When he finally arrived in Darwin, Australia, uh, or in Adelaide, he, which was the big city, he gave a brief word to the press. I mean, this was international news. MacArthur makes it to Australia on all the newsreels that you would see in the movie houses as they're trying to keep people up to date on what's going on in the war. And this is what he said in his statement. He said, the President of the United States ordered me to break through the Japanese lines and proceed from Corregidor to Australia for the purpose, as I understand it, of organizing the American offensive against Japan, a primary objective of which is the relief of the Philippines. I came through and I shall return. I want to ask you today, how many of you really believe that Jesus is coming again, that he will return. Raise your hands if you believe that. We don't, I don't know why, we don't talk about this in the church very much anymore. Uh, some religious groups have made this the cornerstone of their doctrine. In the 1800s, there was a group called the Millerites, who later became the Seventh-day Adventists. And it, their founder, William Miller, encouraged them to sell all that they had give their money to the poor. They dressed in white robes, and some of them climbed trees and rooftops. And at the moment announced by Miller, when Christ was supposed to come again, some of them literally jumped into the air and uh, fell and broke arms and collarbones and stuff. I don't think anyone died. October 22nd, 1844. Well, failure of Christ to return when Miller said that he would um, nearly destroyed the movement, not surprisingly. But there was another group that came on about 50 years later in the late 1800s, early, uh, late, or late 1800s, early 1900s. Charles Taze Russell organized a, a group of people. They were called the Bible students and later became known as the Witnesses of Jehovah or the Jehovah's Witnesses. And Russell, their leader, Charles Taze Russell, said that since all present governments would be abolished when Christ comes again to establish a kingdom on earth, money would be of no value. This was part of his, what he told his people. Uh, like, all the governments are going to be gone, Christ is going to come again, your, your money, even your gold isn't going to be of any value. The only way you could retain some value is to invest it in a thing that he set up called the Watchtower Society. So people... Invest, sent their money to the Watchtower Society. This is back in early 1900s. And uh, then he set a date for Christ to come again in 1914. And surprisingly, Christ didn't come again. Russell announced that he did come. He just had come invisibly. 
always a good tactic, I guess. That caused a lot of people to leave his movement, but the Jehovah's Witness group survived that. But this was kind of the cornerstone. And so setting dates for Christ's second coming has a long and illustrious history in Christianity. The date setters usually, here's what happens. They restudy Daniel, and then they, they like restudy Second Daniel or the book of Revelation. They put the two together, and they, all of a sudden, it just makes sense to them. These dates... No one's been able to figure these things out, but now I did. And Christ is supposed to come, like, in two months. I'm going to write a book about this. No, I better say three months, because it's hard to get something published in two months. So, I, and they're wrong over and over. This is, literally, my friends, if you, if you look at the history of Christianity, this has been going on for centuries. This is not just something from... Uh, this year, in the year 1000, the first end of the first millennium, there was incredible uh, activity going on on people claiming that Christ was going to come again on the year 1000. And uh, people did all kinds of crazy stuff. And I want to tell you this morning that we need to be neither skeptics, nor do we need to be foolish when it comes to Christ's return. But it is one of the most commonly shared doctrines in the New, New Testament. I think uh, it's been a while since I counted, but last I remember that there are only like four books in the New Testament that don't mention the return of Christ. And some of them are like Second and Third John that are so short they don't have room for stuff like that. Almost all of the books in the New Testament talk about the recur return of Christ. So the book of Revelation ends on a triumphal, hopeful note with assurance of vindication for the people of God and annihilation of evil. And I want to just read some of it this morning. So take uh, Revelation chapter 22, and let's read the first seven verses. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. Can I read that again? No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. The angel said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God who inspires the prophets, sent his angel to show his servants the things that must soon take place. Look, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy written in this scroll. I mean, I can just scratch the surface on some of the things here, but let me just point out a couple of, of things. The tree of life that we see in the new city in New Jerusalem, obviously drawn from the image of the tree of life in Genesis, in, in paradise, Genesis to Revelation, the, the circle is complete. In Genesis 3, 
Eating the fruit of the tree of life gives eternal life. But here it's not so much the fruit. It's the leaves of the tree. We are told that the leaves of this tree produce a healing balm or ointment. You know, maybe a a crushed leaf and, and out of that you get some kind of an ointment. Some people think these leaves would be brewed like a tea is what it's talking about. But it says that by the leaves of the trees of the tree, the nations will be healed. Now, what does that mean? I I can only come up with one answer to that question. What does it mean that the nations would be healed? There will be peace. There will be peace. And visualize a world without violence, without killing, without War. Isaiah says, in the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. And many peoples will come and say, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and he will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Go back one slide. This is the the statue of the man beating the sword into a plowshare. I I was going over this uh, text with my class and I asked them, Does anybody know what a plowshare is? And uh, one brave student finally uh, suggested that maybe in the ancient world they had one plow in the village and they all shared it. (laughs) Plowshare is the metal tip of a wooden plow. It's it's made out of metal and they, they didn't have enough metal to make a whole plow. It was Iron was very expensive, but they would make the metal tip on the plow. So very, very important. They would sometimes plow just with a wooden plow, but they didn't last very long and they would fall apart. I Just side note here. Um, my friend uh, and former teacher, Doug Moo, is the head of the New International Version Translation Committee, and I saw him convention last year, and we were just talking, and I said, hey, Doug, you know, I need to tell you that... Uh, um, like in Isaiah chapter 2, plowshares, I asked my class what a plowshare was and nobody knew why, you know, that word doesn't communicate anymore. Why is it in the NIV? And so Doug's answer was, those Old Testament guys, I tell them all the time, you got to quit doing stuff like that, you know, but anyway, so. So I told the class, if there's a change in the NIV, it's partly because of you on that word. And they like that. But... This is in front of the United Nations building and inscribed on that building at a time of very idealistic views is Isaiah chapter 2, verse 4. They will beat their, their plows or, or their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks and nations will not learn war anymore. Today we have an attempt at some type of new world order. You know, we had the collapse of communism 20 years ago but it's utterly failed to bring any kind of world peace. And I'm not trying to be political here, but slaughter continues today in Syria, in Afghanistan, in 
in Pakistan, in, in places in Africa, many other places. In 2014, a, a year ago, we recognized the 100th anniversary of the beginning of World War I. You remember what that war was called? Some of you guys are historians. What was it called before they had World War II? It was the Great War. It was the war to end all wars. Well, that peace lasted about 20 years. And then came World War II, which was the most horrendous war in the history of the world. We will never have world peace until Jesus Christ is crowned the Prince of Peace, right? Every knee must bow to him. Every tongue must confess that Jesus is Lord. And then, and no, no sooner then, there will finally be no more war. And that's one of the reasons we want him to come back, right? We want him to come back so desperately. Well, let's read on here a little bit. Chapter 22, uh, verse 8. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I had heard and seen them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who had been showing them to me. But he said to me, well, don't do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and with your fellow prophets and with all who keep the words of this scroll. Worship God. Then he told me, do not seal up the words of this prophecy of the scroll because the time is near. Let the one who does wrong continue to do wrong. Let the vile person continue to be vile. Let the one who does right continue to do right. And let the holy person continue to be holy. Look, I am coming soon. My reward is with me and I will give to each person according to what they have done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. So here we get a little lesson about the punishing of the wicked. And you would think, if you've been reading Revelation, which is a narrative, meaning it's a story, that in chapter 20, all the, the wicked, they're all taken care of. They're thrown into the, the lake of fire. In Revelation 20, 15, anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. They're judged, they're thrown in the lake of fire, but they keep showing up here at the end of the book. Here in Revelation 22, 15, they're outside the city gates. So you get New Jerusalem and the gates are open and people come in, but there's some people that are not let in. They can't come in. And so maybe being judged and thrown into the lake of fire and being outside the city gates are the same thing. Only those who have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb are given lawful admittance into the city. So as we wait for the Lord's return, we should remember we live... Brothers and sisters, we live among the unsaved, right? Some are, are truly wicked. They are the wicked and perverse generations that Jesus spoke of. And others are simply lost souls seeking the way and they haven't found it. And they've rejected what we've tried to tell them. 
Some will not be saved. Others still have the opportunity of writing their names in the book of life, of washing their robes in the blood of the Lamb. And when the gate is closed, will you be inside the city? Or will you be outside with the dogs, the sorcerers, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idol worshipers, and all who love to live a lie? By the way, the word dogs here is a, a metaphor in the Bible. It's not the... You know, cats are in, dogs are out. Sorry, um, no dogs in heaven. It's a, a, a metaphor for a male prostitute. That's the way the word's used in the Old Testament. The dogs. You know, there's something going on here, I hope you see. Are you ready for Christ to come again? A lot of you raised your hand when I asked if you believed it. Uh, we were talking just a little bit in Sunday school this morning, I guess maybe last week's lesson about being ready, which is, by the way, the, also the message of the Ten Talents. Uh, be ready. Be ready. Are you ready? Are you ready? Well, let's, let's read the last part of the chapter. And I know you're all waiting to get home for Christmas leftovers. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who wishes take the free gift of water of life. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this scroll. If anyone adds anything to them, God will add to that person the plagues described in this scroll. And if anyone takes the words away from the scroll of prophecy, God will take away from that person any share of the tree of life. And in the holy city, which are described in the scroll, he who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. And then we answer back. We say, amen, come, Lord Jesus. May the grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people Amen. Jesus gives his final self-description in the book of Revelation here. First, he calls himself the root and the offspring of David, and that just means he's the returning Messiah, the, the Christ, the one prophesied about who would come and he will come again. And then he says he is the bright and the morning star. And a lot of scholars have wasted a lot of time trying to understand what this is. It's very, very straightforward, actually. The, the morning star means this. It means that uh, here's, this is just taken from a very uh, exotic location, um, my driveway. And <laughs> you can see up there Venus, which is a little bit crescent, uh, which it usually is at this time of year. And the sun is just coming up. Those people who watched the sky, and people in the ancient world did, when they saw the morning star, here's what they knew. Night is almost over. He will come. He will come. This amazing verse, verse 17. The spirit and the bride say, come. Let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come and let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life. And we say, 
come. Well, General MacArthur did return to the Philippines. His forces landed at Leyte on the southern Philippines, the island of Leyte, on October 20th, 1944. He returned to Corregidor in March 1945, almost three years after he had left. He promised to return, and he kept his promise. It has now been, according to my counting, 1,985 years since Jesus promised to return. When will he come? I don't know. Will he come? Oh, yes. I believe that with all my heart. Will he come before I die? Oh, I hope so. I dearly hope so. But will you be ready when he comes? Oh, I pray that you are. The song that we used to sing uh, goes like this. Sing a song of celebration, lift up a shout of praise, for the bridegroom will come, the glorious one, and oh, we will look on his face. We'll go to a much better place. You see, in Revelation here, don't miss this part. Before he comes, he invites all, all, everyone in this room, come to me, he says. And dance with all your might. Lift up your hands and clap for joy. The time's drawing near when he will appear. And oh, we will stand by his side, a strong and pure spotless bride. And we answer back to him when he calls us. We say, amen, come Lord Jesus. This is the, the origin of the word, by the way, Maranatha. It just means in Aramaic, come Lord. Do you pray Maranatha? I pray it every morning. And let me tell you, brothers and sisters, if you can't pray that prayer, there is a spiritual issue in your life that needs to be resolved. If you're not ready for him to come now, there's a spiritual issue in your life that needs to be resolved. You need to talk to somebody about it. We answer back, amen. Come, Lord Jesus, Maranatha. And finally, oh, we will dance on the streets that are golden, the glorious bride and the great son of man from every tongue and tribe and nation will join in the song of the Lamb. Let's pray. May we never rest except in the promise of our Lord Jesus Christ. Behold, I come quickly. May we look to his return with hope and longing and in this period of waiting, remember that he died for us, the church, the church, the church. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, come. We pray this in your name. Amen.